welcome back to DCEKG. This is Joe Grogan along with Eric Euland. We want to begin by thanking our platform host, Big Wig Media, and our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, run by our producer, John Swartaki. Survivors for Solutions advocates for patients looking for the next generation of cures and treatments for the diseases that they have or that they may develop. And here at DCEKG, we're always trying to diagnose what's wrong with the body politic and what's going on in Washington, D.C. Today, however, we are joined by noted economist Andrew Scott, beaming in from England, where he's going to give a view and kind of educate us on some trends in life expectancy that individuals need to confront and also policymakers. So why don't we start, Andrew, with getting into this book, which, you know, we're only audio, but I'm holding up a copy of The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and a number of people I've referred it to since first reading it, they've all enjoyed it as well. Why don't we start with why did you write it? Ah, great question, Joan. Please carry on recommending it to everyone. Uh, Yeah, so it's interesting, because in a way, the reason I wrote it, in a way, the subject to the book, although you wouldn't put the two together. So I'm an economist, and most of my career I've spent been uh, doing the things you think economists talk about in monetary policy, fiscal policy, business cycles, interest rates. But after the last financial crisis, to be honest, I was just a little bit bored. You know, there's only so many times you can talk about whether interest rates are going to go up or go down. Uh, and I was just wanting to do something different. And uh, one of the things I'm always interested in as economists is trends. And I would give this lecture uh, at London Business School in a course called World Economy, Problems and Prospects. It's a bit full of problems now rather than prospects. But anyway, uh, and I would give a talk about an ageing society. And this ageing society story was a very gloomy one. It said around the world, we've got fewer people being born, people living for longer. So we've got more old people and old people are a problem. They get ill big health costs, they don't work, big pension costs, and they're going to be a big burden on the economy, so the economy is not going to do very well. And halfway through this very negative uh, presentation, there's a chart that says, on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer. I thought, hello, how we turned that into a bad news story? Uh, you know, that sounds quite good to me. Uh, and that got me thinking. And that's what really got me thinking about the 100-year life, which is that really we've got to think about this as not being more old people, that we've got more time ahead of us and how do we deal with that? And I spoke to a colleague, Linda Grattan at London Business School, who's a sort of OB professor, focuses on the corporate side of things. And together we wrote this book called The 100 Year Life, which said, how do we use this time? And in particular, focusing on careers and work. And yeah, it's been a great, it's been a global bestseller. It's fantastic. I think one of the reasons why I really liked it is all these demographic books, they're, they're all, they might as well just be in the dystopian science fiction section, or not even science fiction, they're all gloom and doom. And this one is like, hey, this is a trend you need to be aware of, but it's, and it's not all roses and cherries, but it, it, it says, hey, look, we can manage this. People should be thinking about this as individuals. Society needs to think about it, but it's something, I, I, nobody's gonna go reaching for the suicide pills when they read this, as opposed to so many other books that are in bookstores. I agree. I think demographers have done us a great disservice. They've taken this really interesting topic, how do we respond to longer lives, and made it something actually, I think, quite sort of negative and one-dimensional. And I think they do two things. One is they make it very negative. 
The other thing is they take it away from the personal because, you know, I, I'm a big believer in longevity as a trend up there with AI and climate change. And that's kind of where I'm working at the moment. And we need to adapt and adjust to it. But actually, compared to AI and climate change, there's something really interesting about longevity, which is it's incredibly personal. It's about our life and what we do. It's about the aging process and what you do at every stage. And, you know, I do find that aging society narrative, which, as you say, is very negative, is extraordinary because what has happened is there's fewer children to mourn losing their life in infancy. There's fewer parents snatched away in midlife. And there's more grandparents meeting their grandchildren. That's a phenomenal achievement. But we turn around and say, oh, my goodness, this, we, we can't afford this. This is terrible. So it's sort of really strange way of, I think, dealing with, I think, one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century. So, Andrew, thanks for that. And I'm wondering, before we get to some of the great things, unpack some of the great things in the book about looking at the positive side of all this, why is it that demographers and public policymakers always look at these sorts of great accomplishments and breakthroughs in a very negative way? What drives them to those sorts of conclusions? To some extent, if you're a policy person, there's often you're looking for problems to solve. So I think there's a little bit in that. And there are problems. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to sort of discount the challenges. I mean, anyone who's got an elderly relative with dementia will know the challenges that come from an aging society. I find it strange. It's, it's all negative. And I think for that, there's a bunch of reasons. I think, uh, and I'm sure we'll tease those out as we go along. The, the first is that over time, we've become much more negative about getting old. It's, there's a lovely uh, meta-analysis of US literature, looking at books and uh, newspapers and magazines. And 200 years ago, whenever you saw a reference to older people, it was often accompanied with a reference to civic duty, family, trust, and things of that form. Now it's always about dementia and care homes. We've sort of medicalized old age. We think of old age as purely just about a deterioration of health. Whereas actually some things hopefully increase with age, you know, experience, self-knowledge, happiness, if you look at a lot of the, uh, the lifetime happiness surveys. But we've medicalized old age, so I think we have a very negative concept of it. Um, I think the other thing is that we kind of... You know, if you look at the demographers in particular, they, they just say everyone over 65 is old. Now, I, I'm 58, so the closer I get to that 65, the more I rebel against it. But it's a ludicrous assumption that everyone over 65 is the same and is old and is in decline. So I think we basically we underestimate the capacity of later life and older people. And that's a pretty fundamental feature of society. So therefore, an aging society is seen as a problem. Now, there are problems, but there's also lots of advantages. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about some of the advantages and kind of to your point, 200 years ago versus today versus looking ahead with this demographic reality here in the West about life extension and certainly what we're going to see internationally. What are some of the less negative, more positive things that people need to evaluate and think about that you've written in your book? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think about as an economist, and we'll talk later about the challenges and you know how you maintain health, wealth, relationships, all of which is important. But you know the simplest way I, I, I put it is the following. Um, if you look over the last 200 years, there's a concept called best practice life expectancy. And that's the country at any point in time that has the highest life expectancy at birth. So today it's Japan. Uh, but you know in the past it was Norway or Germany. The, the sort of battens passed between countries. But if you look at that, 
best practice life expectancy, the country with the highest life expectancy at any point in time, over the last 150 years, it's increased by two or three years every decade. That's an extraordinary number. Now, I have to say, whenever I say that, sort of people are relatively unimpressed. But if you think about it, that's like saying at the end of every day, here's another six to eight hours. So a day going from 24 to 32 hours. That's what's happening if every decade took another two or three years. And we'll talk later about the very dismal trends in the US at the moment. Now, if I said to you, hey, you've got another six, eight hours every day, I think most of you go, that's brilliant. God, I could use that time. If I say to you, hey, you're weak, it's gone from seven to eight days, you go, oh, great, I kind of need that extra day. But somehow with the increase in life extensions, we go, oh, my goodness, that's a problem. But it is about time. Of course, if we can make that time healthy and productive, it's fantastic. But that's the advantage. We have more time. And then the question is, what do you want to do with that time? And I think the other issue about the negative and aging society, everyone always interprets the uh, gains to life expectancy as end of life. But really, I'm kind of what's happened is middle age has got a lot longer. Uh, so, you know, sort of people now are healthy and fit for a lot longer than before. So they can, you know, middle age now extends up to probably, let's say, 70. Uh, and so, you know, that's the extra time you've got, which I think is great. So how do you make use of that time? So do you use it at the beginning of life? So is that why we see, for instance, you know, my kids are... Uh, grew up in a very different way from me and I grew up in a very different way from my father. My father was born in 1925 and literally he was not a teenager. The word teenager, I don't think was invented until sort of 1939 or something like that. So he went to work at 14. He was renting, paying a job, had a job. He's got a family at seven. He's married at 17. He's got a, a house, a child at 18 and a house at 19. Well, that's a very sort of early take on of adult responsibilities. I did all that stuff mid-20s. My kids, I don't know, is it, I hadn't done it yet, probably late 20s, early 30s. So some of that time I think we're using earlier on. Some of it perhaps we're using, you know, there's a concept of a midlife crisis, but perhaps if you've got more time ahead of you, you can actually change things. You know, if you're not in the right job or you're not in the right relationship, you've got more time ahead of you to, to change things. So I think that's that's the key for longevity. We have more time. How do you use it? And it's not just about time at the end of life. And with this change in longevity, oftentimes there's you know a public component or just a kind of a snap realization that, well, the world's changed. We need to take cognizance of this. In this instance, it appears kind of to Joe's point, a lot of dystopian views about longer lifespans all through science fiction and, and fantasy and the like. Uh, and certainly an analysis of this. But in general, as people change their work behavior, how they deal with kids and, and their older parents, uh, reset on community and communitarianism of you know families and generations living together, things like that. Is that all just kind of reactive to what's going on? Or do people purposefully being aware of this kind of take cognizance of it and then plan and anticipate in relation to a lifespan going to 75, 80, 85? I think that's, that's a, I mean, obviously there's lots of things that are changing other than just life expectancy. So I mean, my point about, you know, children taking on adult responsibilities much later, there's this concept of emerging adulthood uh, that people in their twenties spend their time exploring. I think it's due to a number of things, but I, I really do think that's heavily about uh, longevity, but lots of other things happening. I don't think many people are aware of it. I think this is one of the challenges. So, 
if I you know try and think about it, the word, we're very confused about aging. It's a very um, weasel word. It can mean many different things. So let's think about three different categories of aging. We've got chronological age, how many candles are in your birthday cake. Then there's a thing called prospective age, which is how many more years you can expect to live. And then there's a concept of biological age, how how healthy are you, how rapidly or slowly are you actually aging. And what's interesting is we've become a little bit obsessed about chronological age. Now, if you delve into the history books, that's quite modern. It begins about 150, 200 years ago when governments start keeping bureaucratic records and people become more numerous and literate. So then they are aware of their birthday and the year of their birth and their age. But for most of human history, we haven't known how old we are. You're just young or old, depending upon what you look like. And, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting. Even the song Happy Birthday is another 1930s invention, which I think is a, you know, is a great insight. So, you know, we didn't celebrate our birthday because we didn't know when we were born or how old we were. But now with the bureaucratic record keeping, it's a really important number, chronological age. The challenge with that is if you're living longer lives, chronological age only tells you half the story. It's the stuff that's gone. So, for instance, the United Kingdom at the moment, the average citizen has never been so old because the birth rate's falling and people are living for longer. So older cohorts are larger. And so that's you know, a statistic saying there's an ageing society. But as well as the average citizen never having been so old, they've never had so long left to live. Which I think, you know, he says, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, I, perhaps I'm not as old as I think because I've got a lot more time ahead of me. And I think that's the challenge. We, we lock down on this concept of chronological age. Whereas as an economist, if I've got more time ahead of me, then I'm going to say I need to invest more in my future. I've got to invest more in my health because I need to maintain it for longer. I've got to invest more in my skills, in my relationships. So I will behave differently at 58 than my father did at 58 because I've got this greater awareness. And then, of course, that will hopefully mean that our biological age changes too. And what's interesting about biological age is it's malleable. We can change how we age. And a lot of people kind of, it's interesting about this, there's a sort of scientist saying, hey, I'm going to make you live forever, forever. Actually, we know in our daily life, you look at people and some of them just look younger than others. You know, they drink less, they smoke less, they eat better. And we also see this enormous inequality in the UK and the US in terms of health and life expectancy, which also shows you how much your socioeconomic determinants of age influence ageing. So how we age is malleable. Uh, and I think people are aware of that, but they're not totally aware of just how long they're now likely to live. So raising awareness about it, I think, is really important. So, Andrew, we can talk a little bit about, you know, demographic groups, but I want to focus a little bit on this trend and how it relates to the individual. So you have a great quote in in your book from the violinist Stephen Nachmanovich, and it's, if we operate with a belief in long sweeps of time, we build cathedrals. If we operate from fiscal quarter to fiscal quarter, we build ugly shopping malls. I thought that was an amazing quote, and I'd never seen it before, which is really uh, why it struck me. So from an individual perspective, one of the things that's pretty cool about the book is you don't seem, a lot of these books too, if this were a self-help book, it would be, you need to do X. But you walk through different scenarios, even have a chapter titled scenarios where a person has the same name and they make like four or five different life course, course decisions. So how do you talk to young people, for instance? And and for me, I'm I'm like early 50s. So like, say you got 
me and a 20 year old it's sitting there in front of you uh maybe a 30 year old how do you talk about this from an individual perspective to kind of coach somebody this is what you need to think about this is how you should approach this yeah it's a really good question and it's interesting that you know the book's done very well globally but it sort of gets picked up in different places for different reasons so in the u.s it's much more the sort of the older baby boomers thinking about retirement and when to stop work in Japan, uh, it was very popular amongst younger women. And quite remarkable what's happened in Japan. Uh, so Japanese female labor participation rate, so when the percentage of women at work who want to work in Japan, is now higher than in America. It's a remarkable change over the last 30, 40 years. But Japanese working practices are very inflexible. Um, and I suspect that's one reason why the fertility rate has fallen so much in Japan. And the younger generation, particularly in Japan, want to have more flexible forms of work. So I think they really liked the 100-year life. It's called Life Shift in Japan, um, where it's been really popular. We said, we've got to change our working practices to support this this better life. So it's interesting. It appeals to different groups in in different ways. The the advantage I've got in the way I think about this this life is that aging is happening right the way through. You know, I, I... that, that first grey hair, either from birth or around about 18, 19, people start to age. Um, so this is a relevant topic. And the way I think we've made a mistake thinking about ageing is we think there's a there's a moment when you become old and you go from not being old to being old and 65 is normally the bureaucratic threshold for that. But ageing is a continuous process. And if you want to be healthy in your 70s, then you better do well in your 60s. And if you want to do well in your 60s, you need to do well in your 50s. So ageing is this recursive process. Then the question is, what do you tell different people at different ages? So what's the thing that motivates uh, younger people? What I find, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert on this, uh, because I I really want to find out, but I do find a lot of younger people really interested in fitness and health. Um, and there, you know, that seems to be the way to get them interested, looking around fitness and nutrition. Um, there was also a recent um, television series Chris Emsworth put together looking at how to live longer and what to do, and it was interesting how much feedback I got from younger people about longevity based around that, and that, again, was looking at how do I make this a good life and how do I focus on doing health and fitness and mental well-being as well. And I have to say that struck a really good chord with a younger group. I think stuff like pensions, et cetera, and work, that hits the 50-year-olds a bit more. Uh, uh, and then I think for older groups, there's often a little bit around friendships and relationships that come to the fore. But your point about the cathedral quote, I'm glad you like the cathedral quote, because I think one of the challenges we've got is, you know, for most of human history, we haven't, expected the young and middle aged to become old. And this is a theme I'm riffing on a lot more in the next book, The Longevity Imperative, which is one of my own. But, you know, there's always been old people and old people are always young, but most young people didn't become old. Um, It's only now that you can expect if you're 20 or 50 to become 80 or 90. So that changes everything because you've got to invest more into your future. And that's hard. We've got to age differently now. So, you know, I call it the longevity imperative. You are now likely to become old. Many people fear getting old. They fear outliving their health, their wealth, their relationships, their purpose. So then what are you going to do now to make sure that you age well? And that didn't used to be important. 
you know, when you've only got a 10% chance as a 20 year old to make it to 90, you don't think about a pension. But when as now, you know, it's probably closer to 50%, wow, you've got to start thinking about how to invest. And that long-term thinking is, I think, going to be a real challenge because, you know, I, for most of in history, we've had a very high risk of imminent death. And I sort of think that's why perhaps, you know, traditional society was always more interested in preparing for imminent death. So it was a very religious focus and thinking about what happens in the world after. Now, if we've got this, you know, the, the American Academy of uh, Actuaries says there's a 50% chance of a newborn American living to 95, well, perhaps it's not the imminent risk of death we have to spend our day preparing for. It's actually just working out, thinking about nutrition so that we think about that long life. Interesting. You know, you talk a little bit about some of these scenarios, people viewing it as a marathon and choosing to make career changes even at lesser salary at like right around 50 or different times in order to stay in the workforce longer, maybe be less stressed, they're earning less, but they, and they, and the job that they choose, they're going to have a longer runway than maybe a higher paying job that they only have 10 more years that they can do because it gets obsolete. So they say, Hey, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to take a job that I can do for 20 years, even at a lower pay then take a higher paying job for the next 10. I thought that was an interesting way of looking yeah. at it. Well, the 100 Year Life sort of says we developed this three-stage life in the 20th century, education, work, retirement. And you know, retirement, we invented two stages of life in the 20th century. We invented teenagers and we invented retirement. And as life expectancy you know, reached 70, that worked rather well. Um, and that career path, the second part, was a sort of a linear career path, you, you know, you have a junior position, then you have a senior manager, senior partner, senior consultant. So there's a sort of linear career path. And really what's happening, I think, around the world is governments and individuals are responding to longer lives by just trying to extend that three-stage life. They're trying to stretch out that second part. But, you know, if you're going to have to be working into your mid-70s or even later uh, in the prospect of a longer life, that's a very long career path. So how do you prepare yourself for that and it's probably not as you said going to be always working in something that's very intense and stressful so you're going to see lots of shifts um across your career and, and dealing with that i think is going to be very much a, you know a part of the challenge and the opportunity of, of longer lives yeah andrew could you take a minute to talk a little bit about in this evolution away from the kind of three-stage approach and this varied levels of employment and interactivity with work, but also given kind of modern society <laughs> relaxation as well, um, the ambition of, of a comfortable and uh, communicative life. What really do you see here that we're headed to uh, first? And then secondly, what are some of the challenges to that? I know that, for example, as, as we get older, um, the, the amount of health challenges become a little more significant. And certainly, um, you mentioned earlier, we've got some interesting trends in the United States that might strike a little bit at odds with the general trend previously. Just take a minute or two and let's talk about that if we could. Yeah, so lots of challenges. Uh, I think one is uh, inequality uh, in every regard. Um, so we talked about, you know, working and then having something perhaps that's lower paid, but less stressful you can do for longer. 
Well, of course, you can do that if you've got the finances to afford to do it. So not everyone has that as an opportunity. There's also lots of ageism. Uh, so what you tend to find, I know lots of people who are in their 50s and they think they're going to carry on working to the state pension age. Uh, and then suddenly they lose their job because often firms, when they get rid of people, get rid of the most expensive workers and older workers tend to be more expensive. And that then creates, wow, you know, it's not that I've chosen to do something different. I've got to do something different. And, you know, basically there's ageism in hiring. So older workers often find it harder to get jobs than, than, than younger workers. So this all sort of causes quite a lot of problems for trying to prepare for longer. Also, if you are going to transit into a different job, you need to get the skills and experience. So, you know, at a younger age, we've got all sorts of institutions that help us do that. We've got colleges, but we haven't yet got the institutions to help with those later life transitions. You can find them and they're beginning to emerge. You can do some stuff online, but we have institutionalized a, a, a lot of these uh, these processes. Um, health is is a big one. There's lots of uncertainty. You now you can say, well, actually, you know, I'm gonna um, I can carry on working until I'm 70, and then you can't because of health reasons. So, how we deal with the insurance risks around that, I, I think, are, uh, are really substantial. But if I go back to what is the essence, I think, of what is happening here, if we've got this more time, the question is, when do we use it? And what's interesting in the 20th century is as we live longer and longer, because we didn't change the retirement age, we took all that time after retirement. I think for me, what we're going to see in the 21st century is we'll see careers get longer. So possibly retirement may even get squeezed, but that then I think gives us the opportunity to take time this side of retirement. I think that's quite a good deal, actually. If you take time when you're younger and in better health, that actually may be even better than taking it when you're in older and less good health. So it's not that I think retirement will disappear, but I think we're about to see a quite a fundamental shift in when we take leisure. And I gave the example of people in their 20s sort of a bit traveling around the world, perhaps not committing to a full-time job. That's taking some leisure when they're younger. There's people perhaps saying, well, you know, I've been working really hard six days a week. I want to do something three days a week now. That's, again, taking more leisure. So I think that's a great opportunity. But that requires a flexibility in work and in social norms that we're not quite there yet. But I think that is one of the great prospects because, you know, in the 20th century, we saw this big reduction in working hours. We saw not just retirement introduced, but we also saw the working week go down from six days to five and a half and five. Uh, you know, if America introduces the weekend in the 1930s. It happens earlier elsewhere, but we, we introduced a shorter working week uh, and I think that's kind of the next stage over this longer life. How do we get a different work-life balance, literally, but over the big sweeps of time rather than the small units? I spoke with somebody yesterday. I said, so where do you live? And uh, this was a work-related call. And he, said, he, he said, basically out of my car, I go from ski resort to ski resort and uh, find a, a relatively inexpensive place to to live uh, for, for a few weeks. And he said, in the wintertime, I'm, I'm a working ski bum which I thought was pretty creative. Of course, the internet allowed them to do that, but it's certainly something that uh, wasn't available. I mean, we could be a ski bomb in one place, maybe check out a couple other resorts, but we had to work as I did as a cook in a pizza place so that I could get my days in. But um, Andrew, let's, I want to talk about your new book. Before we get into that, can, can we talk about you for a second? I mean, you mentioned your, your father. Let's talk about um, where you were born, educated, and why you chose 
economics as a career and what you did, you said you got bored with just looking at um, the numbers and talking about interest rates, but let's go back a little bit further. So you grow up uh, where in, in the London area? Uh, North London or North London to use my original accent. Uh, so yeah, uh, sort of outer suburb, sort of industrial suburban area. Not, not to the manor born, Andrew? No, no, no. The uh, the estate was pretty small, um, so uh, yeah. So then, where'd you go to school? So I won a scholarship to a private school, uh, a place called Haberdashers, which was a very fun. Of uh, it was about an hour away from where I lived, so it was a sort of I was commuting from an early age. But it was a very intellectually stimulating school, which for some reason has turned out lots of comedians. Uh, so Ali G was one of them, but there are several other comedians but instead of being a comedian I became an economist so uh, I'll let you finish the punchline for that one but uh, um... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know we'll, we'll figure out who's, who's contributed more to society uh, the economists or the comedians but so then in college where'd you go to school and and get your PhD uh, so I went to Oxford as an undergraduate, which was fun, uh, and uh, I'm sure it's changed now, but that was sort of interesting. So before I went to Oxford, so when I got into Oxford, you uh, after graduating high school, you had to do another term where you sat some exams for Oxford, uh, and uh, I sat the exams in English and in economics, and uh, that meant you had nine months before you went to university, before you went to college. And I needed to earn some money. And my parents said, you've got to go and get some. And all my other jobs have been in the cottage cheese factory or a pub. And I thought, I cannot stand doing that for nine months. So I wrote off and I was very lucky. I got a job in the, the treasury. Uh, and I worked with this fantastic team. Uh, I mean, it really was just incredibly fortunate. And it was the days when monetary policy was uh, very monetarist. And it was the early days of computing. And, and really, my whole career, I love ideas. I love, love ideas. Uh, but I think partly coming from a very practical family, I was always to have an impact. And there I am at the Treasury working on computers and datas. And I can remember very clearly some numbers coming in. I fed them into a program that I'd written. It suggested that something had risen by 2%. I handed it to my boss who handed it to the Chancellor, the Treasury Secretary, and then interest rates went up by 2% within half an hour. It was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This is it. There's theory, there's data, there's the analysis, and then there's the action. So that got me sort of hooked on, on economics, and particularly macroeconomics, big ideas, big impact. So I went to Oxford where I studied politics, philosophy, and economics, which is a lovely broad topic. I mean, I, I always like big multidisciplinary approaches, uh, but I was always sort of thought, I've got to do uh, economics longer term and uh, Oxford was great they let you do that it's um, it, it's I say it may have changed now but there's there's the university and there's colleges and you live in your colleges and you have to do these tutorials in your college and really the, what you have to do as a student is every week write two essays um, and as such I didn't really go to lectures very often I just read and I wrote and to this day, I'm still very bad at listening. I'm very good at reading and talking, but listening I'm not very good at. But that, that just gave you the freedom to do whatever you wanted to. And that was a fantastic background. Then I did a master's at the LSE in economics, which was much more about the technical tools. Uh, and then I went back to Oxford, uh, to a place, a wonderful place called All Souls, which has no students. It's just a college of studying. And I finished my uh, PhD, or DPhil, as they call it in Oxford. Wait, 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 one back up one second. They it's a college with no 
students. So you go yeah. to work, you just go there to finish your PhD. No, it's a really interesting. So all the Oxford colleges, I mean, they founded you know, several hundred years ago and also was in the 15th century. Um, but they were basically residential places which had fellows uh, and they would study and think. And on the side, they would perhaps do a little bit of teaching, but they really, there wasn't much of a university. It was just colleges and you joined a college, you learned and became a fellow and then left. And all the colleges over time have sort of become probably part of the university and all taking undergraduates, but also has remained true to its centuries-long tradition. So it just has fellows. And I got elected into a wonderful category. Um, it sounds crazy, but it's a wonderful thing. It really is. You sit three days of exams. One day is in your chosen subject, which was economics for me. One day was in what are called general papers. And you can write about anything. They give you the questions. Then you have one day, which is translation. You have to try and translate as many languages as you can. I'm terrible at languages, so I didn't do very well at that one. But then the favourite part, I changed it now, was you go in for the final exam and you turn over a piece of paper and there is one word and you have to write for three hours on that one word. Uh, and um, uh, my word was memory, which was great. And then if you get chosen, they choose sometimes none, sometimes one, sometimes two. And in my year, which is quite rare, three people, you get a seven-year fellowship where they say, just sit and think and do you know, uh, good things. So it was a fantastic place to be. Really interesting. Really interesting. That sounds like a really, uh, to your point, interesting and unique model. And I can just see the opportunity for diving deep learning, but also ultimately making all sorts of amazing connections and then how best to contribute. So is it a book? Is it papers? Is it, okay, I'm going to go out and found my own institute, whatever it is, uh, taking that that you've you've cogitated on and turning it into to active reality must have been fascinating. It was, yeah, and it's interesting. I, I like the, un, I mean, the unstructured nature of it was good. Uh, I have to say, economics and academic career is very structured. So I, I use my time to spend some time at the LFC and then some time at Oxford. And I, I think that was a good mix because there was the, the freedom of just talking with lots of people in a multidisciplinary way and then going back to economics and just doing the hardcore modeling and just talking to econ people. So as a trained economist and doing all these broader uh, subject reviews and, and thinking about everything, so obviously there's a part of your career that's economics. Now you're talking about some, some bigger and broader issues. Do you see your career to date as kind of a reflection of your thesis for your book that as your career life has unfolded and uh, the fact that more likely than not, the opportunity will exist for you, as you say, to live longer than your dad and, and others of your parents' peers, um, have you taken that on board or is, again, is this just kind of been unconscious? Hey, this looks neat. I could try that. Let's go do that. Wow. That's a fascinating challenge. I want to handle that and, and drive your career that way. Yeah. And of course I'm fortunate as an academic because in many ways, many ways an academic allows a multi-stage career very easily. So I, you know, I'm being blessed in that way, but to a degree that I didn't recognize at the time. Yes. I, I think the, the book, reflects some inner issues. 
I have to say, my stimulus writing the book was one what I just said earlier on, which was about this ageing society story and thinking, well, it's missing something, and we're missing this extra time. I'd also just lost my uh, my mother. Uh, you know, I lost my father earlier. So that gets you thinking a little bit about life and what we're doing. And my... Um, my middle, I have three kids, and my middle son was just graduating from a good university with a good degree in uh, in economics, which was very complicated. Um, and he said, "Dad, I'm not going to get a job after graduating." And I was really cross, and I'm not a cross man, particularly not to my children. I don't think I am anyway. And it was like, "What do you mean you're not going to get a job?" And I, I had to try and work out why I was so agitated, and I, I think I thought three things one I was jealous you know I mean wow you know at his age I left undergraduate I worked for an economist with an investment bank for a very short period of time is my life in any way shape or form better for having worked at an investment bank when I was 21 22 no would it have been fun to go traveling at 21 22 when you're fit and good looking got money you know of course fantastic so I was jealous uh I was also cross because I paid for him to get through college and I'd gone without holidays and here he was about to go off on a, a two-year holiday. And then I was also worried. I was concerned for him. I, I was anxious for him. Right, as any parent would be. Right, precisely. And uh, I said to him, I said, I said, Lou, you know, well, you know, when I left college, if you can get a job immediately after leaving, it was a problem. Because, you know, a year later when you try to apply, you will say, well, what happened last year? Were you, you know, was there something wrong with you? Did you not know what you wanted to do? Uh, did you fail? And I said, you know, you're, it, it's risky. And there's a William Faulkner quote that says, uh, when you fall out of step, you get trampled underfoot. And that three-stage life really demands that everyone does everything at the same time. And Louis, my son, said, that's all right, though. It's not like that anymore. <laughs> of course, that wound me up even more. I mean, my son telling me I don't know about the world. So I said to him, oh, I'm a professor at a business school. I know what I'm talking about. Why we say these things to our children, I do not begin to imagine. Uh, anyway, you know, two years later, he gets a job on a graduate training program for a consulting company. And I, I say to him, I said, uh, aren't you one of the oldest? And he said, no, no, actually the youngest on the program. So, you know, recognizing that things were changing was also a, 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 an input into the book. So there was personal circumstances, family. I think I was definitely getting a little bit bored, but I think the other thing that's really interesting, and we can be a little bit, I guess, philosophical here, which is sort of, if you think, what's the point of a longer life? And I'm not sure there's, this is why I, I, you know, I like Joe's point earlier, that I don't want to do self-help. I can barely run my own life, so I'm not going to give anyone advice about how to run their own life. Um, but there's a lovely quote by Pindar, the Greek poet, which I think is just beautiful. And I, I would like to think that's what the point of a long life is. And Pindar says... You know, the point of a life is to be who you are, having discovered what it is. And I think that's a great way of thinking about it. And to be honest, I suspect at the age of, you know, late 40s, 50, I recognise that, you know what, the the focus on interest rates, the focus on the maths, that's just a bit narrow for me. That's, you know, it's, it's not that I think it's not important. It's just not me. I kind of like big picture and broad. And I think that's how I got into longevity, because there's no, I can't think of a topic as big and broad as as longevity that just roams everywhere so I think that's a a little bit um uh sort of if you like how I'm living the book in that regard so you got a new book coming out in when's it when's it coming out January February 
I hope you must make me talk about my next book, Joe. Uh, it, it comes out in the US in April and the UK in March. It's called The Longevity Imperative. Okay. What's it about? What's the thesis? Why is that one necessary? Yeah. So The 100 Life has been this huge success, and that's great, and it's uh, got people thinking about the future. It's very much focused on careers and work, um, and I think it's really great to get people to say, hey, well, I probably will have to work for longer. How do I do that? I'm going to have to do things differently. Since then, I mean, it's about 10 years ago now since I rewrote the book, uh, started work on the book. I've thought long and hard about longevity, and this book puts everything in it. And what I want to try and do is nail it as a single theme. And my hope, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is to get longevity up there with AI and climate change accepted as an absolutely first order priority, not just for us, us as individuals, but for firms, for businesses, and for government and society. And so it says, we've entered a new stage of human history. Now, if that sounds dramatic, and I'm always wary about business school professors talking about you know, dramatic change, but it really is a change that people haven't, haven't woken up to yet. It's, it's really interesting. Whenever I, um, I, this World Economy course, I ask my students at the beginning, uh, they were MBA students, what are the big trends that are going to shape the future? And they will start with AI and then with climate change. Sometimes a climate change and AI. Then we go all over the place, all sorts of things are mentioned. And then as the sort of the energy of the conversation starts to subside, someone will say, oh, demographics. And I say, well, what do you mean? And they say, aging society. I say, what do you mean? They say, more old people. And that's it. When we talk about AI and climate change, we have really you know, enthusiastic debate. How do we adapt and how do we adjust? How do we seize advantages? What do we do to mitigate it? And then right at the end, it's like, oh, it's just more old people. And it's remarkable that the other thing I often say to them at that point is, you know, they say, oh, in 40 years time, there's going to be a lot more old people. And I say, and who are those old people? I say, what do you mean? I say, well, who are all these people aged over 65 in 40 years time? They say, well, they're old people. I said, no, they're you. And they go, oh, it's quite, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness. Yes, of course. And, and it's kind of interesting that we just turned this really interesting and I think profound topic into something quite dull. And... That's what I want to try and change and say, look, don't talk about an aging society, talk about a longevity society. Yes, there's more older people, but the real pressing thing that you have to focus on, we as a society have to focus on, is we have to age well. So that's the key thing. The first longevity revolution has been achieved in the sense that global life expectancy, global life expectancy is now over 71 so we've, we've achieved this remarkable thing. We've lowered infant mortality, we've lowered midlife mortality, and people now can expect to live more than 70 years, well beyond 70 in the high-income countries. The next thing is we have to change how we age. Because if we go back to what we worry about with longer lives, we've sort of delayed the dying part, we haven't delayed the aging part. So health deteriorates with age. And as life expectancy now increasingly is driven by improvements in mortality from 80 plus onwards so we kind of you know we've done a great job and we'll come back perhaps to the, the us where it's much more complicated but we've done this great job of getting the majority of people to pass 70 so now nearly all life expectancy improvements are happening through mortality rates after 80 and that means that they're in less good health 
So what we're going to do now is we have to change how we age. That's the second longevity revolution. We've got to make sure that health span catches up with lifespan, that we can be productive and engaged, because as a society, we don't support these long lives for all sorts of reasons. One, because we haven't had to do it much in the past. Only a few people became old. But we have to make sure that we age well. We have to be evergreen. So I call it the longevity imperative, creating an evergreen society. And there is really very few things as important as ensuring we age well. It didn't used to be the case because you had a minority chance of becoming old. Now it's a majority case. And, you know, you look at the health burden in the UK, the US and other countries, even globally, it's ageing related diseases that are the biggest burden. So the book sets the scene. It says, hey, we've entered a new moment of human history. And this is what we can do about it. So it has a big chapter on the health system and what we need to do about health, the economy and employment, the financial system, and then starts to look at things like politics, uh, um, the generational challenges it brings, and how does society adjust to this new reality. So it's more of a policy focus. Yeah. Uh, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more, it's really big picture. Andrew, you've mentioned a couple of times that the, the U.S. isn't quite as consistent with what we're seeing globally. Just mentioned a moment ago that the reasons for that are a little complex. Could you unpack that for uh, our community? So uh, it's interesting because, you know, in the U.S. people say, hey, life expectancy has fallen. Let's put COVID to one side because COVID complicates things. But my hunch is that COVID has been a temporary fall in life expectancy and it will go back up to what it was before. That's what we're seeing. What's interesting in the United States is that life expectancy, average life expectancy is sort of really flatlining. Whereas in most other countries, it's continuing to rise. It's flatlining in the US and has been for quite a while. The result is, for instance, that China's life expectancy is now greater than the United States, which is quite remarkable if you compare the GDP per head. And you know, US and UK has always been less than best practice. But the gap's gone from something like four years behind best practice to something like eight years now. So and that's the average. Now, that, I think, is a real problem. I, on, as increasingly, I think that life expectancy and healthy life expectancy in particular should be a key government target. I, you know, We know health is valuable. We know life is important. And ensuring that we age well is key. Now, if you delve deeper into the United States, you see that the, the flatlining of life expectancy is a little bit misleading. You know, averages can be misleading. I would tell my students, if you've got one hand in a pot of boiling water and one hand in the freezer. On average, you're doing fine, but it's not going to feel like it. And, and you've got that average for US life expectancy. It's being kept at that level, if not slightly declining, because of the, this phenomenon of deaths of despair. So the deaths of despair is very heavily concentrated in white, non-Hispanic, non-college people. And they've seen this huge increase in mortality rates in the 40s and 50s. And that has been enough to bring down those improvements in US life expectancy to plateauing. Outside of those groups, life expectancy is still rising. And of course, if you're in the most advantaged socioeconomic groups, it's increasing at the rate it is in the UK and elsewhere, probably by more because, of course, the US has got some of the best hospitals and some of the best treatments. Not necessarily the best health system, but some of the best hospitals and the best treatments. So it's a real inequality story in the, the United States. 
Uh, and we're seeing something similar happen to the UK, but just not quite as dramatic as in the US, as is often the way. So you've definitely got, you know, great life expectancy trends if you're uh, privileged in the United States. Um, and interesting enough, even though US life expectancy has plateaued and even fallen for a couple of years, US life expectancy from 65 onwards has actually still been increasing. So again, it's those midlife uh, deaths of despair that I think are the really big problem. So yes, the US, I think, has a big challenge. And given how much it spends on health, it is remarkable how um, disappointing its life expectancy and healthy life expectancy outcomes are compared to other countries. I, I don't mean as an outsider to criticize the US, but it is quite remarkable seeing that. I'm tempted to go down the rabbit hole on the deaths, uh, deaths of despair, but I, I want to ask you about the underinvestment in retirement for a second, because I think we'd be, we'd be remiss without your insights on that. Um, we constructed a social security system in the United States, uh, taking a page from Europe. And I think Euland will know this because he knows everything. Uh, the name of the woman who the first social security retiree, she, I think the life expectancy at the time was, was uh, 62. And she got, she turned like, she lived on the thing till like 89. She was the first social security re recipient and got far more in money coming out of the system than going in. Well, she was an outlier, but you know, that's the trend, right? We've got this 65, 67 retirement age in the United States. A lot of people assume that they've got enough, but they, they maybe don't that they're, they're just living longer and their expectations when they entered the workforce weren't quite there. The other problem uh, confounding this is pensions have disappeared in the United States largely, and it's, it's on individuals to save their, their money. I mean, do you have any thoughts around this, both from like, what are policymakers? Is this in your newest book? Do you confront this issue about what policymakers need to do as far as this underinvestment in retirement? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is, as, as with all policy, it's complicated. But um, if you think about the problems, it's the same for an individual as for the country. Where do I get the resources to pay for a longer life? And your point about when we introduced the retirement age, because technically retirement is illegal in the United States, as it is in most countries. There's a few professions where you can enforce retirement. But what tends to be happen is that there's an age at which you qualify for Social Security, and then a lot of people stop working. Uh, and we call that retirement. So we'll, we'll call that. And you know, obviously in the US, lots of people now work beyond retirement age. Um, and it's remarkable the 20th century because at the beginning of the 20th century, I, um, so the Germans introduced a state pension under Bismarck in the 1880s, UK about 1908 and US uh, 1930s in the New Deal. Um, but before then, of course, most people work for most of their life. They work while they, until they can't. So you have really high participation rates amongst older people. But obviously, they're often getting frail, their wage isn't great, and it's not, not good. So retirement is this fantastic invention because it guarantees people financial security at the end of their life. Uh, and I think, great, it's a really, really great achievement. But as you mentioned, it was set assuming there wouldn't be many pensioners, and now there's loads of pensioners. But the trend of the 20th century is this massive reduction in people working after 60. 
And it sort of reaches a trough around the mid-1990s. And since then, around the world in the rich countries, high-income countries, you're seeing people now working more and more after 65. But US leads the way at about 20%. UK is about 10%. But that number is going to rise and rise and rise. But it's controversial. It's really hard to shift that that social security age because you get lots of political flack. Uh, and so most countries, and the US would be a great example, say, way in the future we're going to increase it so it's always a bit slower now how to solve this problem i mean i personally think it's it's hard to see a way to solve the problem without having people working for longer you know if you if you're living for longer the only way you can maintain your standard of living over a longer time period is either you save more so you spend less early on or you work for longer or you get a higher return on your savings, or you get someone else to pay for it. Uh, and getting someone else to pay for it is just kicking the can down the road. So the solution has to be either saving more or working more. And so it's going to have to be working. The thing that bothers me about most governments around the world, uh, including the US, is that there's a lot of focus on extending the social security age. But that really doesn't do much. That's just trying to keep a three-stage life going. Because if you look at the labour market, the real problem is from about 50 onwards, people start to leave the labour market. And they leave it because they're ill. They've got to look after someone who's ill. Um, They lose their job because their skills aren't relevant or because of ages. So, yeah, we've got to increase the state pension age. Yes, we've got to try and help people to work beyond that. But if you're not working at the state pension age, you're not going to be working afterwards. So how do we stop these people leaving the labour market from 50 up to 66, 67? And that's where I would begin, because at the moment, more people leave the labour market between 50 and 66 than leave it at 67 when the social security kicks in. So that's what I think is a really key thing. And if you look at the numbers, it's a lot of people. So it has a big boost to GDP. Because the trouble with changing the social security age is, of course, you know, I, I'm, I can show you professors who are still doing the same job in the 90s. So, they, you know, that's great. But not everyone can carry on working. Their health might not be good. Their job doesn't allow them to do it. So I think just making sure we can keep people working from 50 to 66 is utterly the key thing. Then we can worry about how they get people working beyond. Um, but that's already happening quite well for those who can do it. Uh, so that would be my main first starting point. How do you keep people in work from 50 plus? It's got to be about health and education. And, you know, we know that health and education is great for economy amongst young people. We just got to start to realize, oh, it's the same for old people as well. Andrew, I do appreciate your point about an enhanced focus on thinking through good policies for people between 50 and 66. The shocks first of the financial crisis in the late aughts, and then certainly COVID and the aftermath have really accelerated people's outward boundedness of of leaving the the workforce, either because they want to or because, to your point, they feel they need to, and the difficulty of finding something that works for them or the attractiveness now of being outside the workforce can't tap your, your retirement income yet, but you do have more than enough disposable income and enough savings to, to have a comfortable-esque life and not have to work full-time or even part-time 
is definitely more and more attractive to more and more people here right now. It is. I have to say, I was. I mean, both the UK and US after COVID saw this big fall in employment amongst older people. They just withdrew from the labour market. In fact, it was so large that it had macroeconomic effects. Both the Fed and the Bank of England said, hey, this is a trigger for inflation, which has had the consequence, I suspect, in the US as well as the UK, that now the, the Treasury are getting interested in, hey, how do I keep these people working for longer? Um, which I think may be a, you know, it's a good supply side policy to, to try and focus. It's the nearest thing I can see to a, a free lunch. But I I do not think it's viable for, given the life expectancy trends, for people to retire early, given the uh, modest amount of Social Security offers. Uh, I, I don't think it's a viable long run policy for people. So I think that's a big problem. You put your thumb on something that I think demands further exploration and good policy ideas from folks in London, in Washington, ultimately around the globe. And the uh, answer to today's episode's quiz question, Ida Mae Fuller. Joe? Well, I just want to thank you, Andrew. This was great. I think we could have gone on uh, for a lot longer. You gave us a lot to think about. I look, look forward to your next book. Um, the one we've been discussing is 100 Year Life. But tell me again, uh, and the listeners, what the name of the new one's going to be? Uh, the Longevity Imperative. And it's already available on Amazon if you feel so inclined. Well, I, uh, I'll be ordering. I'm sure you and Will, because he's going he's gonna to live a long time. He takes good care of himself, drinks a lot of water. But on behalf of uh, Survivors for Solutions, Big Wig Media, and DC EKG, this is Joe Brogan and Eric Ewan thanking our great guest, Andrew Scott. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Enjoyed it very much.